Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pets podcast, uh, where we talk about plant science. Hi, I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram, and in the, this is the second go that we're doing this, and this time we didn't dance, so... Don't spoil the magic, Joram. You, you couldn't even listen to us dancing this time, so this will lost, be lost for you for all eternity. Uh, this week, um, we are once again in sort of spring slash summertime travel mode. So instead of doing our sort of normal rotation where every second week we talk about a paper and then the other second week we do like different segmented themes, we're just doing a sort of random travel related show this time around, which sort of makes sense. But also, so Yara and I have this other podcast where we read <laughs> books related to plants. Um, it's called The Plant Book Club, which I think the name is quite intuitive. And when I messaged Yoram two nights ago and was like, oh, yeah, we should do a travel themed show for the book club. He's like, oh, is that because of the book we're reading? Um, what book were we reading for the book club, Yoram? I mean, I'm not reading it because I still haven't um, gotten it because it's, it's actually harder yeah. to find here. But it, we're reading The Wardian Case. And the, the Wardian case is a contraption that's necessary to make plants travel from long distances overseas, mm-hmm. uh, which was very important. I think I, that's what I, what I remember from the blurb on the book, um, that the Wardian case was essential for traveling um, be- before we had fast travel. And to keep plants alive, when you move them from Australia to Great Britain you would usually lose the plants that you have on board because they don't like to be in seawater conditions, shaking with bad lighting for six months at a time. And so you would lose all of your precious cargo. And with the Wardian case, apparently, it's like a mini greenhouse thing. They managed to yeah, keep them alive. Yeah, it really looks like it's a terrarium, but it kind of does look like a small gazebo. It's very cute. Yeah. And this also, I mean, so this was, as you said, it was used, it was developed by somebody whose name is Ward, Nathaniel Ward. Um, And then this sort of became one of these sort of key things that um, Britain then used to be able to ship plants across the world and also helped them um, smuggle tea out of China, um, which helped with some empire building there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was involved in smuggling the chinchona plant from South America. So that's the quinone, the plant that's quinone. So again, that's really important for helping soldiers not get malaria and helping wartime success in tropical countries. Um, also importing of rubber trees um, from Brazil um, to Sri Lanka, Ceylon at the time. So it's it's kind of got this really v- like interesting, I'm using that with mm-hmm. some strong emphasis, um, history in, in moving plants, but also in sort of so I'm looking at the Wikipedia now. They use the term breaking geographic monopolies, but it's also just like pillaging natural resources. Um, yeah, I would rather from, say it's, yeah. it's a colon- colonialist tool rather than yeah. breaking monopolies because, I mean, of course, yeah, there were also economic monopolies there, but... Like, yeah, that was their resources, right? Like, I mean, Australia has a monopoly over the gold in Australia, but that's because it's the gold in Australia. I mean, again, like, yeah. we can also argue about... Anyway, <laughs> that's yeah. a whole other thing, but yeah. Anyway, so that's what we're technically reading for book club. We were going to record last weekend. Um, I found out two hours before recording that I was reading a completely different book, which I don't <laughs> even know how that happened. It's My one was on rambunctious gardening, which is like quite an exciting, like, sort of a rewilding, like bringing back nature. I think, I think we decided we're going to read two books um, and I read the next one, like next month's mm-hmm. one. 
I want to say. (laughs) Otherwise, I just invented, I don't know. Um, But that will be out if you want to listen to that tale. I'm really excited to read the What In Case book, honestly. Um, (laughs) That'll be out in a few months' time when we've all read the book, actually. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So anyway, that was not actually the reason we're talking about travel today. We're talking about travel today because it's the travel period in our life and we're just not that creative, honestly. Yeah, and I'm really excited to travel again because I haven't really traveled in over a year time. I think in the in the first pandemic year, um, in the sort of milder summer time, we managed to do like one trip. Mm. But since then, we've been in the same location. And so now we're traveling to see family abroad, like, in, like not abroad from Europe, but for us abroad, like outside of Germany. And so that's really exciting for us, although like traveling with two kids it's really annoying, but I don't know if it's more annoying than traveling with plants. I think it depends on how you travel with plants. Which is actually, that was the first thing I looked to look for these facts. And there are some YouTube videos about how to bring plants on an aeroplane. So mm-hmm. for those of you who are interested in traveling with plants, I mean, I moved from Berlin to the UK to London with a ton of plants, including a huge tree. And that worked out really nicely. Um not many of them died. That was also before Britain brexited, so it was okay to ship large amounts of plants onto the island. It's now not okay anymore. Um, but you can travel with plants, but that's not really what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be like an information session on how to like wrap your fiddle leaf fig with paper so that it doesn't get too cold in a November van. Yeah, but I think one thing that we should mention at the beginning when traveling with plants is that probably you you should not travel long distance with plants. I think from yeah. like Germany to the UK, it's fine. But in terms of invasive species and transporting species to places where they shouldn't be, on most long distance flights, at least, um, you have very harsh controls. There's only a very few number of species permitted. It varies from country to country. But I found some numbers for the United States where it's only a handful of species that you're allowed to bring on a long distance flight into to the United mm-hmm. States and even if you do that you have to make sure that you don't bring any soil so you don't bring any pests so the, you have to have bare roots that are in some sort of non-soil medium like wet paper for example um, to keep them alive and uh, they have to be otherwise also like clear of pests so in most cases in terms of biosafety maybe not the greatest idea to to bring plants on long distance travels. I guess like I'm this is awful. I'm Australian and I tend to think that Europe's already kind of got all the things. Yeah, it's just like, like, I feel whatever. like you're you're the problem and you're bringing things to my beautiful pristine island as opposed to our Australian things coming to Europe, but I realize that that is a flawed perspective. <laughs> yeah, there's also things that are invasive here and that are problematic. And of course, like being not an island, places like Europe have a much harder time yeah. to avoid getting them in. But you're it also not mean- even a continent. Have you ever thought about how much you're not even a continent? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a mess. And um, But yeah, so that I think is important to say at the beginning for like man may travel, but we have lots of other like travel related things as, as well. And sometimes there's also long distances involved here. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun Um, speaking of traveling distances, uh, humans traveling distances with with plants, um, I have a story. I mean, that I, I nicked that shamelessly from another podcast. I stole that from Baby Geniuses about Martha Stewart, 
who flew with eight trees on a plane um, from Wisconsin, where she picked them up. These are like native trees in Wisconsin, and she brought them to her farm in New York. And she she flew in a private jet because she's rich, and she um, put them like on their own seats. They had like two sets of four seats, and in one set there were humans sitting, and in the other set of four seats there were eight trees in total strapped in and fl- being flown. Um, from Wisconsin to New York. And from that on, I, I went to look into, like, is that something that rich people do? Do they just, like, bring trees from place from place to place? And I found another example where a very rich person does something they like. Uh, there, the trees don't travel with planes because these trees are hundreds of years old, way too big to travel on planes. They literally travel on boats, so you'd see images of a full-grown, 100-year-old tree sort of oh, floating no. through the ocean because it's on a little barge and being moved around. And this happens in Georgia, the country, not like the place in the US that's named after a country. And there's Bidzina Ivanishvili, which is the richest man in Georgia. And who he has actually been the prime minister for a rather short period of time. Um, okay. And then... Like um, sort of went away and wasn't like that's seen that often anymore. That some people even wonder if he's still in Georgia or if he's living elsewhere. I mean, he's so rich; he probably is also living elsewhere. But yeah, um, one of his hobbies apparently is collecting trees. He has a very large garden that's also open to the public. That's nice. But in this large garden, he's collecting very old trees and he has them shipped to his garden from all across the country. So his minions his lawyers and construction workers they go to places where very old trees are and they pay the locals for the tree that they like to take and then they literally take weeks to dig up the tree with its roots and then put it on very large trucks and then later boats to transport it to this garden um and this raises all kinds of questions because on on one hand like like the locals they don't really own the trees and so they're also not really attached to the tree in in a sense that it's something that they made so suddenly they get some cash for it which is nice at the same time often these trees being so old they have some sort of cultural significance to them these are the trees where the kids play on the these are the trees that give them shade and um, next to their houses and stuff like that what's what is i mean he collects them but what's he looking for in a tree where he's like that's the one for me like i mean i have a tree if he wants to offer me lots of money i could give him a tree but like does he want like the the very old ones is he looking yeah. for rare varieties he just like likes a tree and takes it is that i mean he doesn't really give an explanation for why he's doing that but i think it's mostly coming down to the age of the trees um okay. the size and that they're like very impressive looking and i think it's also just a flex it's just he sh- because he's so rich. I mean, these are massive endeavors. This takes weeks and months to transport these trees. They have to mm. sometimes like reconstruct roads and and um, uh, and force bridges just to get the tree over the bridges. So it's a major infrastructure undertaking to get these trees out of these locations and put them in the garden. And so just being able to do that. It's, I think, just a flex by a rich person. Just like, look at me, what I can do. And then also they say, the, the public that can visit the garden, for them, it brings joy to see all of these trees in the garden um, collected I mean, together. L- like, legitimately, I would obviously visit that garden. Like, if I was in Georgia. I mean, actually, now, if, if I ever went to Georgia, it would probably be to see that garden. This is a draw to me. I was like, oh, now, yeah. I've, I've not thought about visiting Georgia. It might be, it might be nice if they... What have I got? They got there. 
I mean, one way to, to visit it without traveling right now is watching a movie. There's a movie called Taming the Garden that's from last year. Uh, it's a sort of independent film. Um, and this film talks about the journey of these trees. It, it's, um, it's a documentary that follows this whole process of picking these trees and mm -hmm. transporting them. Unfortunately, I couldn't watch it yet because it's kind of hard to find it streaming somewhere um, because it's an independent film. It's not in the major catalogs of Netflix or whatever. So um, it's a little bit more difficult to find it, but I have it now on my bookmark list because whenever I can find it somewhere, I want to see that. Because yeah. the, you can, like we're linking to to the IMDb page and from there on you find trailers and stuff and it's like, it's like really beautiful. And you also see the tree floating in the ocean there in the trailer. Um, and yeah, apparently this rich person in Georgia makes trees travel long distances into his garden. I mean, if, if I was honest, if I were him and I had lots of money and I was from Georgia, I would obnoxiously just buy as many peach trees I could. So I could become <laughs> like, oh, Georgia peach. Do you mean my Georgia peaches? And really try to disrupt the narrative about, you know, the US state of Georgia <laughs> being the peach state. I would just be that kind of person. <laughs> I mean, we all know that you would be that kind of person. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think this is a good segue to, I mean, the, the Coco de Mer. You're talking about trees floating on water. And I think you you already know about the Coco de Mer. And I think, in fact, we probably already talked about Coco de Mer on the podcast at some point. Do, do you remember it, Joram? I, I don't. Coco de Mer? No. Is this like a, the, the chicken of the sea? Uh, quick enough of the sea, but <laughs> quite close. Um, so it's this giant seed. I think you should definitely. So it's it's like the mm -hmm. largest seed in the world. They can they can weigh up to thirty kilograms or something insane. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and it looks they, like a butt. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I really want to focus on today. Even though we are talking about travel, so the reason this uh, this plant comes up is because it's you know it's one of the biggest seeds in the world, but it's also kind of famous for traveling in the ocean. Um, so because they are found sort of like on the Seychelles, it's an archipelago, they can sort of sometimes fall into the sea and then they drift for a long time. It doesn't seem like that's actually a dispersal mechanism. So from what I'm just having a quick look, it says that the nuts that have floated for miles, they don't germinate after that. So that's probably damaging them. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not actually deliberately, I mean, I'm using quote, quote, but they're not, this is not their plan is to get out to sea and then go long distances. Um, but they do sort of float. But because of this, yeah, looking like a butt and some other <laughs> facts, like the fact that it floats in the sea, there's a great Wikipedia article that is not Coco de Mer, but it's Legends of the Coco de Mer. And it talks about some of the different unusual qualities that the trees um, have and how that's then linked to these legends. So I think... <laughs> It, it mentions immediately at the start of the article that it's the shape and size of a woman's disembodied buttock. Um, <laughs> and on the other side, it looks like the belly and the thigh. So it's it's very sort of fascinating from that point of view. And then um, the Coco de Mer also has both male and female plants. And the male also has some kind of unfortunately male parts um and because of this they've got sort of very erotic shapes especially for trees there were some myths about the the tree sort of getting up and making wild and passionate love on stormy nights um so there's sort of these myths and then associated with that there's also a myth that if you do see the trees make love because the trees themselves are shy if you see it you'll go blind or maybe you'll die so it's also that's part of the mythology. Um, 
some people have also suggested that this is the forbidden fruit from the the Old Testament. So this is sort of, and again, it's just because it looks sexy. It's really just, mm-hmm. it looks sexy. And therefore, this is the thing that sort of, you know, drove this switch in Adam and Eve. Although some people have also pointed out, you know, this weighs like 15 to 30 kilograms. Eve might have had a bit of a hard time lugging this over to Adam to, to offer it to him. As- <laughs> <laughs> Lifting that heavy thing off. <laughs> Please hurry up, Adam. I can't hold this all day. And that's how it all happened. But yeah, I think um, it's it's got some interesting ideas. And the, the one that I quite like, I mean, it's not as sexy and exciting. It's just that people, I mean, because they're floating, people also saw the Coco de Marinat sort of fall upwards. They would bounce out of the sea. Mm-hmm. So they originally had this idea that they grow underwater. So there's underwater trees, a forest at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, and these grow from that and then sort of float <laughs> up to the surface so this is yeah the coco de mer we, it's getting a, a honorable mention in the segment because it is famous for sort of traveling long distance even if it's not really effective at traveling but it has also you know incited imaginations across <laughs> time so the coco de mer is all about seed dispersal and i found another story about seed dispersal did you know that it was believed for a long time that only uh, like the biggest driver for long distance seed dispersal, so to move plants like seeds or seed capsules from uh, from one population over long distance to and an, um, establish a new population, was done by megafauna, so very large animals that are extinct now. There's things like the giant sloth, sloth in South America, for example, that was notorious for that, and some other very large um, animals that. Um, yeah, we're believed to then like take these huge seeds and then transport them with their body and then ex- excre- mm-hmm. excrete them, poop them out somewhere else. And that because of the extinction of the megafauna, we don't really have that long distance seed dispersal anymore driven by animals. That was believed for a very long time. Uh uh, but now they have, or like recently in the last couple of years, researchers have, have looked at another species and those are oil birds. These it's are like oil bird. these are brown. To me, they look kind of like an owl from their fa- from their face. They're brown mm-hmm. little birds, around like four hundred grams in weight. So, like a large chicken, I would say, or like a small chicken. Maybe a chicken's probably heavier than that. So, a small chicken bird, but they eat fruit, and they eat fruit with fairly large seeds. Because the problem is that when plants have large seeds they reduce the number of animals that can actually take these seeds and transport them somewhere. Because obviously, mm-hmm. they, if they can't eat them or swallow them, then how can they transport them? Uh, and but these birds... You might, you might reduce the, the sort of broad amount of types of bird, but then if you get one really big, large one, you're going... Yeah. So you get, you're going to go far, right? You, yeah, and you get it's more like specific... Exactly, and so that it was believed that with the with the disappearance of this megafauna, um, plants stopped sort of caring or like uh, didn't dev- rely on on animal transport or animal seed dispersal anymore. But now they found these oil birds, um, and if they did an analysis on. Um, they tr- they tracked them with little GPS devices how far they would fly and then they mapped out local populations of, of plants and then they at night they fly very long distances and then during the day they sleep in caves and so they looked in the caves what seed droppings they would find there and then tried to map these back to the populations they mapped in the surrounding area and they could find some that were like 47 kilometers away um, oh, wow. uh, that these 
birds transported so they can really bridge long distances for fairly large seeds and so it seems that uh, even without the megafauna there's new species now that are filling that niche of of making seeds travel for such a long distance so i want to i want to take that fact and raise you an elephant so if <laughs> you had to to guess between an oil bird and and what sort of elephant forest elephants um <laughs> What what do you think would be moving the seeds? You said 45, 47 kilometers? Yeah, that was maximum. I think the average was a little bit lower, but that was the, the longest distance that they could record with their method. All right, what are we betting? Elephant versus oil bird? Um, I mean, now that you're asking like this, but... I know I don't know how f- how far elephants travel especially forest elephants. I mean it must be harder to travel to- through the forest being an elephant than being a bird. So maybe <laughs> yeah, I think the elephant gonna... <laughs> does like 30 kilometers. Yeah, I mean the elephant does less he does 40 kilometers and that again that's the maximum an average maximum on like the average average was like more about 4 5 sorry 5 kilometers um and most seeds went further than one kilometer. And this is like going through the elephant as mm-hmm. with the birds, like in and out. Um, what I liked about this study is that, I mean, okay, it, it sort of makes sense that, you know, an elephant eats the, the fruits and then poops it out. But I liked that they also looked into the behavioral traits and they found that different behaviors influence the dispersal different the distances. So, for example, mm-hmm. a more bold exploratory elephant is going to make the seeds go further because it's sort of roaming around a little bit more mm. and it got like 1.1 kilometer farther away than a shy or idle elephant um, <laughs> is what they said. And so this is this is sort of related in some ways to protection and sort of how, you know, protecting even animals can also have this positive feedback on some plants. But I really like the behavior element because when I was looking a little bit more into this, I also found a paper that said that small mammal personalities, this is a title, small mammal personalities generate context dependence in the seed dispersal mutualism. So again, this is looking um, now at some sort of mouse. It's a deer mouse. And they basically could show again that there was differences between the the seed um, dispersal based on how like nice the mice are basically so the the personality trait they're looking at here is um how like aggressive or mutualistic their interactions were i think with each other mm. so yeah I, I really i think this is an interesting field of ecology it's sort of something that's um developing a bit but i i like this idea of like oh if you're a plant you better hope that you've got the bold elephant because that's gonna potentially yeah. do you better yeah i i found another story and i I didn't read uh, fully through it because it was only tangentially related to travel for today. But this was about um, herbivoric insects that would uh, infect plant populations. And also there you would have a behavior difference between them. Um, So it depended on whether these insects, um, the, the female insects, would deposit their eggs close together all on sort of mm-hmm. one cluster or if they would spread out their eggs and also if they would g- avoid other plants where these female insects are already and and find their own new plant or if they s- sort of um, bulk together with other female insects this would have massive impacts on the population for for the plants because when they all cluster together both the eggs and also the the, the animals the insects uh, the overall population is healthier because you have then some escapes you have then some plants that are not affected by herbivory because all mm-hmm. of the herbivores are stuck on some other plants and when they start to spread out and the insects try to avoid each other um, they cover much more ground and are much more harmful for the entire population and this is not something that's 
like one species does one trait and one other species does the other traits. Like within one species, you have these different behaviors of these insects that have a big impact on the plant population. I think it's sort of related to that. I mean, even so we're talking about how you can get this long distance dispersal. And that's obviously really exciting if it comes to sort of colonizing new lands. And especially when we talk about global change now, because we're talking about, oh, my goodness, things are getting warmer. So plants and animals have to move where they live in order to like track the, the climate change. So then we're like, oh, yeah, like long term seed dispersal is better. But that's actually not always the case. Right. So in many instances, there are benefits of being in the place where your sort of family comes from and you've got these kind of protection mm-hmm. things you've got basically just the fact that if your your parent plant was successful enough to grow there thrive and reproduce that in itself can be an indication that that's a suitable landscape for you and this is especially true for plants and other organisms that are very specialized um then you know that might be that small area and of course you've got some some negatives there as well so you've got like competition um that then comes up you're now competing with your mother or father plant um but I found actually an article that was discussing this. So it's sort of the mother site hypothesis um, about how some plants might sort of want to have limited dispersal, that you want mm-hmm. to restrict how far your seeds go. And I thought this was a nice article because it actually comes back to one of our other favorite issues, which is gender <laughs> and sexism. So usually there's a term philopatric used um, by zoologists that sort of remain near their place of origin. So this is for animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so philo is sort of loving and then Patrick is the father. So it comes down to the, the love of the fatherland. And this author in the abstract is saying that actually when we talk about plants, it should be more philomatric because actually we're talking about the seeds and those are developing from I mean obviously it's male and female involved but they're developing from the ovary from the female Mm -hmm. part of that plant Um, so they're discussing how these different maternally influenced characteristics um, are working on this you know preference for nearby dispersal versus um, far far away dispersal yeah, that's also something that came up in the um, bird dispersal story. Um, the big trade-off that that exists there. So it's not actually great for all plants to be hitchhikers for very long distances because that's most likely then very different climates or very different habitats. And then it's... Yeah, uh, you, you end up like a coco de mer where you've traveled for yeah. like miles in the ocean, but actually you've like screwed up your own seed in the process, yeah, right? Yeah, like, exactly. So it's not always an advantage. Um, but speaking of like the male part of, of uh, seed dispersal, so the pollen dispersal, um, I found a story talking about the fastest plant on Earth. Earth. Um, have you heard about this? Do, do you know Ooh, the, it- what the fastest plant on Earth is? Is it a high-speed pollen dispersal video? Is yeah. it something? Yeah, I think I think we've discussed this a little bit. I mean, you've you've seen a few of these videos, yeah, um, and shared them with me, and they're just so impressive. But I've, I've mostly seen like uh, seed dispersal stuff where you, they they fling out the seeds, something they give them a spin, so they are ballistically mm-hmm. more stable, or they shoot them out in a jet of water, like these little melon things. I do I do have one that I found again and I think you've talked about it before. It's the bunchberry dogwood and exactly, this is this is a one. seed yeah. Is that is that pollen or is that the seeds that's that the are pollen. playing at? That's the pollen. Okay. Um, Tell me more. Yeah, the story goes that um, an undergrad student in the greenhouse, they were um, manipulating the flowers and I think they were collecting the pollen for some experiments. And I said, like, the 
policy just went poof in the air and they were very confused and then their um their pi sort of their their superior was like what what they did what um and they tried to film it with um, a camera that does a thousand frames per second so a very good mm -hmm. high-speed camera like four times better than what an iphone does for example um so you have an idea so it's like very very good slow motion and all they could capture was a blur they couldn't really capture the the effect and so it was an incredibly fast process and so they got another camera that does 10,000 frames per second and with that insane slow motion capability they could f uh, figure out that this little flower thing emits a poof of pollen into the air in half a millisecond um, so an incredibly fast action and this is now deemed to be the fastest sort of macroscopic plant movement um, that we know of um, where they just shoot a little jet of pollen in the air to then have a traverse with the wind to to find other flowers yeah and just to sort of describe it the the stamens so the the part that has these fluffy pollen bits on the end they're bent inwards towards the center of the flower sort of like arms bent inwards and then they just sort of open up suddenly and they fling out wide we've got a video that we can link here as well um but this force is like 2400 g's that they're flinging <laughs> the pollen into the stratosphere effectively i mean it doesn't go very high but <laughs> it could if it if it wanted to you know um yeah, it's, it's truly impressive <laughs> we could have rocket launches made up from these these plants we just need a million of these plants under a rocket they all triggered at the same time and they fling the rocket into space I mean, it's definitely, it's something that I really love, um, this, you know, inspiration from plants. So I think, you know, we've discussed about the, the use of things like um, hydrophobic plants, like water lilies being used for hydrophobic surfaces or nonstick surfaces. Um, the really famous one, of course, is the fact that Velcro was originally inspired by somebody who was, you know, walking his dog. And then he saw that there were some burrs from a plant. Let me just quickly find it. It's the, the burdock um, plant and they were sticking to the fur of his dog. And then he looked and he noticed all of these um, little burdock had little hooks Mm -hmm. on the outside which was hooking onto the dog and this is how this is why we now have velcro right from somebody observing plants so we've definitely got a few examples where people have seen cool things that plants can do and put them into very practical use so maybe we're gonna have some sort of i mean they, they basically have already these things you can find at some shows where there's a trampoline and there's like some springy mm -hmm. for children to play on <laughs> maybe it's yeah. the but maybe it's the next rocket launcher like i don't know <laughs> yeah hopefully civilian rockets but yeah um, elon musk get on it <laughs> be useful be useful in this world yeah um i have a space fact related to rockets while we're already speaking about rockets i looked off at at plants in space and um of course there is a lot of science done on plants in space we try to figure out can they germinate how do they figure out where's up and down we know that roots have these little starch grains in them that uh sense gravity so a root knows where up and down is depending uh, independent of sunlight so even in mm -hmm. a dark soil it knows where up and down is but what happens when you are in zero gravity or microgravity environments where there's no up and down? Um, and to study all of that, there's lots of plants experiments being done on the ISS and I think even on previous space stations um, and on satellites. And whenever we shoot something in space, at one point we we're going to put a plant on there to figure out what's going on. Um, 
of course they are for astronauts for like long distance travel for astronauts uh, we want to figure out how plants work because if we shoot a couple of astronauts to mars ideally they would grow some food on the way so they don't have mm -hmm. to pack all of the food in um yeah in in their in their luggage when they go um, so that's why we're researching it. Um, I found that there has been already some food grown in space and eaten yeah. in space. Like they, they made, a, I think, a pak choy salad, um, like a Chinese cabbage that they grew. Some of it they sampled for science and some of it was uh, already foreseen to be eaten by the crew. Um, and they made like a little balsamic vinegar dressing with it and were very excited to have some very fresh fruit because everything else they have is freeze-dried. Mm -hmm. because um, water is heavy and so you can't bring fresh produce up there. So everything is freeze-dried. So having a fresh salad was, was a really hit for the astronauts. And then I tried to figure out like how far have we ever flung plants into space. Um, and it was hard to find anything. So without being 100% sure this is the first that we shot stuff, but I remember that um, a couple of years ago, China shot uh, like sent a probe to the moon, to the mm -hmm. far side of the moon, and that's that's much yeah. further away than the space station. And they had some seeds, they had a little box there with different seeds, among which were cotton and also Arabidopsis and some other, they also had yeast and some other um, mm -hmm. animal cells in there, uh, or drosophila eggs. And they had them germinate on the far side of the moon. Um, and that was the entire experiment to see if they can germinate after that travel. And then eventually they all froze to death because the heating system ran out of energy. Something broke down very early on. So we, this is one of the first articles we ever put yeah, on I think the, literally the, first the website. One. Yeah. And unfortunately something broke quite early. And it was supposed to be, I think, almost a concealed ecosystem where if, if there was the right balance between sort of the silkworms and the plants, it should sort of mm -hmm. be able to, to survive for a while. Um, but it, it quite rapidly did not. <laughs> Yeah. But I was definitely surprised to see that people were eating things in space. I mean, we've talked a bit about scientists bringing plants into space quite oh, I mean, it's it's kind of a hot topic and it's it's something that scientists are always doing. It feels I mean, I guess not always, I guess it's very expensive and yeah, I don't know, you have to vie for positions. Um but I didn't know people were eating it and they also mentioned that having the plants is also nice for the the mood of the mm -hmm. The astronauts to see some leafy greens not just to eat them but yeah if you imagine you're in in this um metallic box somewhere in space and everything is technical equipment i think i think seeing some organic life that's not your crewmates is very important for morale yeah i guess one uh, sort of related to that did we talk before about the moon trees no no, I I'm, I'm not sure if it has come up and we've just forgotten about it. But so way back in the 1970s, like early 1970s in the Apollo 14 mission, people took five species of tree. It's loblolly pine, sycamore, sweet gum, redwood and Douglas fir. And they took these seeds up into space and then they brought them back down again. And the, the point was basically to see whether these seeds could germinate after they'd been on this space, space flight. So they sort of then carried out the sort of lab test and they, they found that they could in fact germinate successfully and then they, you know, watched them for a bit. And then sort of after a few years, the, the Forest Service in the US has just got, you know, 400 tree seedlings, which have, you know, the seeds have been to the moon, but now you've got 400 seedlings and in, in a few years, those are going to be 400 trees. So people basically... Um, 
put them out into the wild somehow. So, you know, the the trees didn't really grow differently from moon trees. So there was nothing that clearly marked them as far as physical differences. They looked similar to the, the controls that were planted on Earth sort of at the same time. And in some ways, they sort of became a little bit lost. So some of them had plucks on it. And just keep in mind, these were planted out sort of into the wild um, as part of like a bicentennial celebration um, for the US, so in the 1970s, mid-1970s. And then I guess maybe they got a little bit forgotten or nobody was paying attention. And then somebody, a, a teacher, Joan Goebel, her name is, she sort of found a tree and at the bottom of the tree, it was like, this is a moon tree. This tree is one of these trees that has been seen. And she was like, wow, this is amazing. And she sent an email to NASA and, and reached somebody at NASA. His name is Dave Williams. And he didn't know that this was a thing that was happening. He didn't know that <laughs> he, like, you know, this experiment wasn't in his memory. Um, it was, 20 years before and they didn't know where the trees were so then that sort of became a bit of a treasure hunt across the world where not across the world across um the u.s where people were trying to find where the different moon trees have been planted and as recent as 2011 um wired magazine actually had an article describing this effort it seems to still be ongoing so the 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 magazine article had the address of dave williams um if you are ever in the u.s and you find a moon tree you find something with a plaque on it saying this is a moon tree please you know (laughs) follow this through it looks like people are still trying to locate some of these (laughs) missing trees but yeah scattered across um <laughs> and in fact, you know, I said um, I said the US, but it does seem that there's also up to 15 moon trees that might be growing in the United Kingdom as well, although none of them have been found yet. So they also brought some of them mm-hmm. to the UK and maybe they're around. Who knows? Um, maybe they died. They survived a trip to space, but then they died on their way to the United <laughs> Kingdom. They didn't have a Wadian case big enough. That was the problem. <laughs> Um, but there's there's also a list on Wikipedia, and I guess there's also a list on the NASA website where you can see um, where these are. Um, there also seem to be some actually across, like there's one in Brazil, a couple in Brazil, some in Italy, some in Switzerland. So there do seem to be some around. So if you ever want to visit a city just to visit a tree, here's <laughs> one I can recommend for you. Yeah, after this episode, you have a couple of places you can go to see trees. You can go to Georgia. I mean, obviously go to Georgia first. There's a whole bunch of trees there. Um, everywhere else, it's going to be a bit more of a journey. But I mean, I don't think that Georgian guy has any moon trees. He might pay somebody. He might like pay somebody to dig up their uh, moon tree. The hidden 15 UK moon trees <laughs> that ended up in Georgia with like very expensive travel. Amazing. Um, yeah, really cool. Uh, I I have um, one final thing on um, travel in city road networks. Um, and we'll see in a minute how that's linked to plants. Um, so when you look at city structures and uh, and you map out the main ways to get from point A to B, if you imagine you have like some center, some downtown area where most people want to go, and you have places where they live, that's in the suburbs or around there, mm-hmm. and you then start to map out the best travel um, paths to to go from your suburb home to downtown where your work is. So if you map out all of these different paths going from the suburbs to downtown um, and you analyze the structure of them, what factors they are dependent on, you come up with a Pareto front. And this is a statistical system where if you have a couple of different inputs um, and you, you want to find out which solutions work and which solutions don't work, then you can use this model. You use it all the time in engineering. If you have like 
millions of possible combinations of your little of your different factors you can use this Pareto front to get rid of most of them and find only the ones that actually work and if we look at cities we find mm -hmm. that um, they follow this this principle so instead of ha that everybody has their own private route going from their home to the place of work that would be extremely uh, um cost ineffective it would be extremely expensive for us to build such a road network where everybody has their private road for all of the connections so we share roads and we bundle them together and um, we do that in cities and they with the analysis they found there's only like four different sort of prototypes of city structures that you can map um, a lot of very different cities you can all map to these four um, common types and um the other thing that they found, and this is where it ties into plants, is that in plants, it's the in in some plants, it's the shoot system, the above ground system from the stem to the leaves that follows the same principle. So the leaves would oh, be the okay. locations where people live, and the stem mm -hmm. would be the the downtown area, and the nutrients, the sugars that are made in the leaves, um, have to go to the stem and then into the roots, and instead of every leaf having their own little capillary directly to the roots, of course, they also share systems and they branch together and, and, and join together. And this also follows this Pareto principle. So cities and some plant structures are based on the same statistical principle that describes these pathways, which I found pretty cool. And there's also like neurons. Neural networks are also following this principle. So the connections between two points in the brain um, can also be mapped with this principle. Um, and this seems to be an emerging biological like um, phenomenon. phenomenon that we yeah find several times and also like in human-made things where we think like, yes, cities are have completely different constraints how we build our cities. But in the end, it comes down to the same thing of moving stuff from A to B and what is the most efficient way, the best trade-off between being expensive or cheap and being efficient. Very cool. I've seen also these ones where they um, sort of grow. I think usually it's, it's fungi, mycelium, and not plants. They sort of grow them in a structure and they show that they often connect up as the way that cities mm -hmm. connect up on a map because that's kind of the logical way. You know, you go from hub to hub. You have these central hubs and you have branches coming out of them. Yeah. So it's, again, like, you know, human structures imitating nature. Yeah, I mean, we're also just walking around like meat sacks with a brain <laughs> in it we also just biological systems we try to be all rational and all special but in the end if we have to go from a to b we're like what is the fastest way uh. but also the, the way that's not requiring me to build my own private road to get to the city center so i have one more thing i want to mention and i'm sorry it definitely missed um the right slot yoram you can do some fancy editing wizardry in post and put this into <laughs> no. the right segue no you're not going to um so <laughs> Sorry, it's talking again about spores and how spores move around. And I'm not sure that we've talked before about um, equisitum spores. This is horsetail. So these are these kind of a bit ancient looking plants, mm -hmm. uh, quite simple. And the spores have this really weird structure where if you look at them, it basically looks like an octopus, but with only four legs. Mm -hmm. So it's got a bit of a, a body and then it's got these kind of long, almost... Um, swirling as well sort of almost mm -hmm. a bit corkscrewed legs to them yeah i've and recently seen something about it but i can't remember anymore what it was but i remember seeing the structure only like a couple of days ago 
Yeah, so I guess um, people knew the structure for a while, but they didn't really know exactly what was happening. Um, and then in 2013, so it's, you know, 10 years ago now, there was sort of some more information that looked at how this interesting structure can actually help the spores of this plant to move around. So the four leg-like things are called elaters, and they are described as flexible ribbon-like appendages. And they sort of initially wrap around the main body of the um, spore, but then depending on the humidity, they can sort of expand and contract. And this helps the spores literally move through space. And there's two different movements. They can walk, which is sort of just twisting quite slowly and kind of tumbling around. And um, so the, the walking movement is that they can sort of just go not very far, but they can sort of uh, move a little bit in their orientation and like flip a little bit to the side um whereas they also have these jumps that they involve them very tightly folding up and then thrusting forward so it's really a jumping mm -hmm. movement um which can also help them sort of catch the wind as well so that might even help them get more distance by using the wind if they jump a little bit into the air and this again it's depending on the humidity so it's a little bit random but then you get this this movement and there's a nice video of this on youtube which i think you should definitely all go and watch and it sort of shows these guys with their little spherical elaters whipping around and dancing um across the screen mm -hmm. i'm always fascinated by these simple humidity driven sort of uh, internal movement processes like there's no muscles there's no muscle fibers there's no active energy that's that's spent to, to yeah, it's move very around structure based right it's just like yeah. some bits are thicker than other bits and depending on what absorbs liquid at a different time and then yeah there's this this other plant the, the erodium cicutarium uh, also known as a common stalk bill that's known for drilling into the ground also based on a humidity driven process mm -hmm. it has this long tail and it um, first winds up and uh, i think when it dries out and when it gets wet it sort of unwinds in the other direction and that helps to drill the seeds uh, that's attached into the ground and it's also just based on humidity just changing levels of humidity in the air will make this thing move around and then literally force itself into the ground um with fairly high uh, high pressure um yeah i i i really like this kind of plant property it's quite um quite soothing to watch as well i would very mm -hmm. much recommend it Cat fact. Uh, I have a cat fact also about traveling, this time traveling cats, and I wondered how far can cats travel. And usually house cats, they travel between um, half a mile to a mile. So that's 600 meters around your home to maybe 1.2 kilometers around your home that, um, that cats travel in general. But there have been some reported cases where cats can travel up to like 200 miles home. Um, and I didn't look up what 200 miles is in, in kilometers. Uh, you can do the math at, math at home there yourself. But we simply don't know how they do it. Researchers have... On their feet, surely. How, no, yeah, but how do they find their way home? There have been stories where people traveled with their cat and the cat escaped at some point and they were 200 kilometers away from home. Um, couldn't find the cat anymore, gave up, went home. And then a long time later, 
the cat showed up and I could tell because it was microchipped. So it was not just a cat that looked like their cat that they had lost. <laughs> it was the cat that they had lost because it had the same microchip in it. I like uh, that you have to confirm that. <laughs> it was actually their cat. I mean, <laughs> I, we have some black I mean, cats in the neighborhood I, that I could not tell apart. So if one of them would be mine and the other one would come to my home at one point, I would not immediately be able to tell the difference between them. I mean, you know how they do it, though, right? It's basically just rage and revenge. It's basically Kill Bill, <laughs> but in cat form. Like, their owners left them somewhere, and they are, like, enraged they've been wronged, and they're going to hunt those people down until they find them and, like, I don't know, pee <laughs> on their belongings or something. Yeah, but in, in, in many animals, we have, with experiments, we could figure out what, what helps them to navigate, and it's things like, for example, the stars in the sky that can help them. Um, they can... They literally put animals in planetariums so they can change the sky that the animals see and see if the animal's movement changes based on the star, like star shapes and stuff that they can throw on the planetarium sky. And apparently, like with cats, they couldn't figure out what it is. So they have a mysterious sense of orientation. We don't know if it's the stars, if it's the magnetic field, if it's some other or a combination of things that, that they can sense. But they are able, if they're furious enough, to go a very long distance to, to get home from places that they've never been to before. Um, Do you think, um, like, sense of smell? Like, maybe just, like, I don't think they can smell long distances, but I think they could just, like, wander until things started smelling right. Yeah, but 200 kilometers away, like, it smells completely like, different. Just walk a bit. It still smells weird. Keep walking. I mean, I think I honestly think at 200 kilometers, the fact that you go in the right direction is chance. It's just like there's a lot of cats in the world and some of them <laughs> happen to go in the right direction. And then the other ones, like, let's be realistic, probably die in the desert. So there's some like survival bias here as well. Like, oh, my cat found its way home. OK, but what about the 60,000 other cats that didn't find their way home? <laughs> That's a good point, actually. I mean, it could very well be that they just randomly happened to enter the neighborhood that they know and from then on it was easy for them to actually find the garden of the house that they that they lived in um yeah i don't know um but still if it's if it's not a chance driven process researchers have no idea how it works but i mean if it if it is then yeah <laughs> then it will be hard to find it find reason I think that's it. I think that's all the facts we have today. Um, we are going to leave this one as a bit of a shorter episode and go and get ourselves ready to travel into the wider world ourselves. Um, we hope all of you are doing well also and also have the opportunity to relax and move around and see loved ones if that's on your agenda and if that's something that you haven't managed to do in the last few years. So, yeah, um, yeah. wishing everybody luck out there. Um, until then, if you want to catch up with us, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. And we also have a website. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com is where you can find various articles about different things and all of the links from the show. And the opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.